I'm John Banther, and this is Classical Breakdown. From Classical WETA in Washington, we take you behind the music. In this episode, Classical WETA host Bill Bukowski joins me as we get into part two of What is a Symphony? If you haven't heard part one, listen to episode number four, where we talk about all the developments of the symphony through Beethoven. In this episode, we talk about what happened to the symphony after Beethoven through the 20th century. Bill, how short, if you had to guess, do you think is the shortest symphony ever written? Um, maybe less than a minute? Less than a minute, even shorter. Okay, 20 seconds? A few seconds shorter, 16 seconds. That's about how long the Spring Symphony, The Joy of Life is by Michael Volters. It's a 21st century work, obviously. It's pretty interesting. There's a video I, I can put up on the show notes page. But that also kind of th- makes you wonder, well, is it a symphony then? Is that enough time to create this whole world of music? That's a good question. And we're going to kind of figure out what happens with a symphony in the 20th century. But this is part two of what is a symphony. Part one was uh, chronological, had distinct developments and changes to the symphony. And we left off with Beethoven's Symphony Number no. 9, which was premiered in 1824. And it was his last symphony. He died a few years later in 1827. So what was it like in the immediate years after Beethoven's death? It's not like everything changed suddenly, right? No, I don't think so. I think uh, back then people were still assessing his legacy and what it meant, and there were still, um, knowing him universally as one of the greatest composers, I think that was still up for debate at that time. There were certainly a lot of his contemporaries that didn't care very much for his music or thought it was just a little too modern, Uh, interestingly enough. But he set the bar really, really high. And because of Beethoven's nine symphonies, any composer that wanted to be treated seriously or taken seriously needed to write a symphony. That was the way you made your great personal statement. And a lot of the symphonies that we heard in part one by Mozart and Haydn and even early Beethoven, you know, music from the 18th and 19th century, Basically, unless you really know music or you listen to it a lot or you're a musician, it's really easy to confuse maybe Mozart with Haydn. But really after Beethoven, that's when we also get to really kind of hear composers' unique voices. And after a while, when you're listening to them, you can kind of identify different characteristics. So I think that it's an opportunity to where things don't just all blend together maybe with the 100-something symphonies of Haydn and 41 of Mozart. And that's another thing that you can give Beethoven credit for. He started off solidly in the tradition that Mozart and Haydn had perfected, and he went beyond it. He went beyond it to make extremely, extraordinarily personal statements. And so every composer after him had to struggle with doing it in their own uh, idiom, and um, making their own statement uh, and making their own, creating their own symphonies. So right after Beethoven, we can look at Franz Schubert and his Symphony Number no. 9. He actually started writing this right after Beethoven's Ninth Symphony. Beethoven was still alive. It might have been premiered in 1829, but I think it's kind of agreed that it's more 1839 with Mendelssohn. Yeah, Schubert's symphony. And Schubert basically, too, was almost, his lifetime was almost contemporaneous with Beethoven's. He actually uh, walked in the funeral procession uh, for Beethoven. And his symphonies, if you listen to them as well, also sound very much in the Haydn-Mozart mode. Uh, But again, Beethoven giving you permission to sort of break the rules. And his Symphony Number no. 9 was composed and completed 
and stuck in a drawer. It didn't actually emerge until years later. A manuscript was given to Robert Schumann from Franz Schubert's brother, who had it locked in a trunk, and he said, maybe you might be interested in this. And he took it to Mendelssohn, and it was Mendelssohn that arranged at least a partial performance of it. It's an extraordinary work. So one thing that's different right away with Schubert's Ninth Symphony is he's using the trombone to its full capacity in that in the first movement, you have the trombone even kind of taking over the lead. Beethoven wrote some for trombone, um, actually not that great. Uh, Beethoven Five, uh, where his where he really includes the trombone, that's kind of like the first time trombone appears. It's a terrifying part. It's not that well written, and there's a lot of doubling with other parts as well. But in Schubert Nine, this is when the towards the beginning of the first movement where we hear the trombone really coming in. And that's leading up to this huge kind of section. It is still that Beethoven sound and style, as we were talking about, uh, coming out of the tradition, but already bringing something new. I think the thing that I find so remarkable about Schubert's Ninth is just the wealth of material that he uses. It's like one great tune right after another. Yeah. It's like as soon as you're, you're sort of grooving to one tune, and then there's another one coming, and then it changes into another one, and it goes on and on and on. Just a wealth of material packed into this work, even a little nod to Beethoven in the final movement. It's very short. It's just a little snippet. And it pops right out, that reference to the Ode to Joy of Beethoven's Ninth. And this is in 1825, 1820, 1829, when he was working on this. As you said, it was played um, later. We get to something wildly different in 1830 with um, Hector Berlioz's uh, Symphony Fantastique. And this is totally different. We're dealing with more movements. We're dealing with a huge orchestra. A lot of things are different. Yeah, Beethoven basically broke the mold, and Hector Berlioz kind of came along and said, well, then I can do whatever I want, which was essentially what Beethoven was saying. And he, to use a sports metaphor, he took that ball and he just ran away with it. And it remains still the most extraordinary debut symphony ever by anyone. Yeah. The only one that comes closest, I think, would be Shost Dmitry Shostakovich in the uh, 20th century. But the other thing, too, that's remarkable about, about this symphony and the fact that it's so huge is that Berlioz wrote it, produced it, arranged for the concerts, conducted the orchestra, sold the tickets, made the the bills and the posters for it. He basically organized this whole thing, the debut of this itself. It's a really fascinating story if you ever want to look it up. And it's his first one. Yep. It's, it's wild. Um, we'll listen to a bit of uh, a movement, which is the March to the Scaffold. I mean, the sound from what we just heard is totally different. And as you were saying before with, you know, just one tune after another, that's how it is with this one, too. And there's some are just wild and out there and some are 
uh, big like that, but still something different. The other thing, too, that you pick up right away, especially with that uh, excerpt, is a Gallic sensibility. There's definitely a French sound to this symphony, post-revolution and, you know, sort of marching and that kind of thing, um, which you don't really hear a whole lot of. There are not a whole lot of French composers who are famous for their symphonies, but uh, Hector Berlioz in this one symphony uh, really made a, a, a name for himself. And that's, I mean, in France in the 19th century, they just didn't, they didn't, they were not big fans of the symphony. They wanted opera, right? Something big and dramatic. Opera was big and ballet was big. Yeah. Um, it was a little harder to get symphonies performed. Saint-Saëns wrote five symphonies or three symphonies, I believe, actually five total. But getting them performed uh, was a challenge even for him. And the Symphony Fantastique by Berlioz, it's a, I mean, it's why I can't count how many times I performed it. Um, you hear it all the time. It's just great. It almost sounds like an outlier, like something flew past you and you thought, what was that in 1830? Um, it actually is kind of unique. If you think about it, now that I'm thinking about it, really, there was never anything like it, of course, before. And I'm not really sure there was anything like it since. Nothing quite like this one. Not in that time and place. No. Going on to Felix Mendelssohn, his Symphony Number no. 4, written in 1833 and, come, and premiered in 1834, um, the Italian Symphony. And this has one of the most joyful openings, I think, to a symphony. It's lively. I mean, it's it sounds when you think of, you know, just being in some big bustling, opening the door into a city in Italy and this sound. But that's what also, I also think of this Berlioz part as like an outlier because you had that happen. And then you had these um, symphonies by uh, Mendelssohn and Schumann in a moment that are continuing Beethoven, but it, they're not doing something totally different like Berlioz. Right. They're pursuing their own path. Mendelssohn also, like Beethoven, was solidly in the Mozart-Haydn tradition and also trying to find his own path. What's interesting, too, about Mendelssohn, and especially that particular symphony, is that it wasn't published in his lifetime. He didn't think it was ready. And Mendelssohn died tragically early, like Mozart, in his mid-30s. But the, he didn't think that that symphony was good enough. He didn't think it was finished. And he didn't publish it. It only came out after his death. And, of course, it's become so popular and so famous. So maybe in one sense, we liked it better than he did. And that's, I mean, we're uh, we're over a century and a half removed from these things. And it also shows you, too, that composing a symphony is not an easy thing to do. It's very no. tricky. Uh, Wagner discovered that and probably just said, well, okay, that's not what I want to do. There's no reason to write symphonies. Beethoven didn't let me do something else. And for Mendelssohn, it was like, no, it's not quite good enough. Uh, I need to do another one. I need to try again, maybe later. Same thing with Franz Schubert. He left a couple of unfinished symphonies yeah. as well. But we can jump to another staple like Mendelssohn's Symphony Number no. 4, and that is Robert Schumann's Symphony Number no. 3, the Rhenish Symphony. This is also based on, I guess, the geography, Rhineland in Germany. He was there for a little bit. Um, yeah, there's a little bit of the sound of a river in there, and also uh, there's one movement that actually depicts uh, the cathedral there. I always get the impression listening to his four symphonies as a man with too many ideas, but not always enough discipline to get them lined up right. One of yeah. the big criticisms over the centuries is that 
Schumann was not a good orchestrator. I'm not sure that I completely agree with that, but his symphonies are just bursting with life and bursting with emotion. The the feelings and the thoughts of a man who had so many, who was in love with so many things that he couldn't get it out all in a coherent fashion, maybe. Yeah. That's why I love them so much. Here's the opening to Schumann's Third Symphony. You're right. It's definitely you're just pouring out your emotion and everything onto the table. It's very powerful. It bursts out like here I am. Yeah. He also uses the trombone to great effect. Actually, very, very difficult in the fourth movement. Um, you come in and the trombone that's being used, it's an alto trombone. So it's like you put a normal tenor trombone in the dryer and then, you know, came out much, much smaller. Um, it's this beautiful kind of soaring moment. Um, and the opening of the fourth movement. So beautiful. People have no idea how hard that is to, to pull off that screeching high mm, note. Sure. Schumann, uh, when we're hearing more brass, and a big part of that is the technology is improving at this time where you have valves for the trumpet, valves for the horn. They're not these what we call natural horns or natural trumpets anymore. And that gives a wild amount of opportunity for composers. Uh, Schumann in particular, who wrote beautifully for brass, especially horn, to have these... I think it, it's like the endings Beethoven would have had if he had the means available to him. As you said, John, Robert Schumann wrote wonderfully for brass, and that's a perfect example of an artist taking a new technology and making it his own. And you're right. It was very new. Mm -hmm. I mean, it wasn't just like people dropped their instruments and started picking up these other ones. Um, but there is a composer that we're going, we'll talk about next in a second who kind of held on to the natural horn. But also around 18, in the 1850s, this is when we got the, I, the whole symphonic poem rage, right, with uh, Franz Liszt. I'm wondering if that seems like that kind of had a bit of, a, of an effect on what composers were writing. There were still symphonies, but it was like a, a new thing, a new fad maybe. Well, as orchestras were building and instruments were, uh, the technology behind instruments was growing and expanding, you could do a lot more with an orchestra. You had more, more things on your palate, for example. Yeah. Johannes Brahms, his symphony number one, he took a long time to finish this, right? Yeah, Brahms was uh, somebody that took the challenge of Beethoven and was spooked by it. He knew that he had to write a symphony if he wanted to be taken seriously, but at the same time, he says, you can't imagine what it's like 
hearing the breath of the man or the footsteps of the man behind you while you're going to write a symphony. It actually took almost 40 years from his first idea to write a symphony to completing it and getting it performed, 20 years of actual composition and fits and starts. Uh, and when it came out, people said, gee, it sounds like Beethoven's 10th. Yeah. I'm not sure that he I'm not sure that he liked it. It sort of reinforced what he was thinking all the time. Uh, that, uh, decades spent, you know, just pouring out over this symphony and then people call it Beethoven 10. Well, kind of thinking about Beethoven, Beethoven's Symphony Number no. 1 had that very kind of new opening. And I think the first the opening of Brahms's first symphony is also very very special. Well, he needed to make a statement. This line just going higher and higher and higher. And the timpani is just magnificent, especially when you see it live because the sound is all around you. Right. And it actually almost sounds like a tread. Maybe Brahms is exercising Beethoven's ghost. He talked about the tread of the master's feet behind him. Maybe this is Ah. his way of accepting it and putting it out there and dealing with it. I like that. Just a thought. It also kind of sounds like a Mannheim roller. The melodies, they have this melody that's getting higher and higher and higher and this steady beat underneath it. Uh, I think we'll see a few of the whole Mannheim ideas um, held over. This is 1876 when he completes this. Um, also at the same time, you have a composer like Anton um, Bruckner with his Symphony Number no. 4. He wrote this in 1874, revised it through um, the next decade. But this is someone who took the new technology and ran with it. Um, in terms of just the scope and scale that he had for brass. Well, Bruckner also was a composer who basically he had three heroes, not in any particular order, I guess. God would probably be number one. And then after that, it would be Beethoven and Wagner. I'm not sure which one was in second or third place. But there's a lot of all three of those heroes in the symphonies of Anton Bruckner. And he got a lot of attention for that, and he got a lot of scorn and criticism for that as well. And he was a musician, obviously. He was an organist. Right. And that has, especially being a brass player and having played these symphonies and worked on them, I mean, it's repeated over and over and over again when you're doing sectionals in school or or whatever, that he played the organ. And even some of the ways he marked on the parts for brass to play, you had to interpret them a little bit differently compared to, um, say, Brahms, because you knew it was a different sound. Um, more full length, more pushing all the way to the end sound that he had. Here is the one of my favorites, the op- the opening to the third movement of Bruckner's Symphony Number no. Four. That's a Mannheim crescendo, if I ever heard one. I think I think brass players owe a great debt to uh, Anton Bruckner. I think that he's one of their favorite composers, if I had to hazard a guess. A debt, to say the least. I mean, this when I'm when I was trying to pull some examples, it was hard because I can't stop 
at that point. I have to keep listening right. and, and and find all of, all of my favorite moments again. Um, but Brooklyn has a very specific sound. Um, it's a, a huge orchestra, and kind of what we're noticing, especially now when we get to Brahms and Bruckner, is that as we're listening here, it's like kind of like being at a buffet. There's all these different tastes. You know, each composer sounds very, very different. Um, you may love one thing or, or, or hate it. It's when I think taste can really start to diverge for, uh, for everyone. Uh, uh, absolutely. And there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, no. Brahms and, and Bruckner are kind of a, an interesting study in contrast. They were both solidly romantic. Their symphonies didn't necessarily represent anything. And, but where Brahms tended to be a little bit more disciplined and a little bit more focused and inward, Bruckner was very expansive, exploratory, uh, looking outward and basically looking upward. Yeah. I think one composer who also changed the game for the symphony but also brought the sound in tighter and more direct is Tchaikovsky. His symphony number four especially has an explosive um, opening. I can't imagine being in the audience, the first audience to ever hear that. Yeah, probably the same. I would give it the same uh, feeling of people in the first audience for Beethoven's fifth, because that essentially was Tchaikovsky's model for his fourth, actually for his fifth and sixth symphonies too. Tchaikovsky came from growing up or growing into music from a group of composers that wanted to create a music that had a distinctly Russian sound. And the first three symphonies of Tchaikovsky are very Slavic. His last three symphonies are very much more in his own vein, but basically picking up where Beethoven left off with that fate knocks at the door theme. That's what we just heard. Yeah. Something he also does different in this symphony. I'm not sure if I know another one before 1878 where in the third movement, the strings are all pizzicato. They're right. plucking the notes. They're not using the bows. I, right. I don't know of a one of this being used before. Uh, here's an example of that. And this is the whole movement is this pizzicato. Things jumping out. It's just you don't expect so much out of just pizzicato for it's not a, a, a very very long movement, but it's substantial. No. and it's, it's Tchaikovsky had a real sense of color, and he knew how to use it. He wrote his sixth symphony in 1893, and there's a lot of you know, or controversy or conspiracy around this symphony. I think because he died pretty shortly after. I think within two weeks of premiering this symphony. Um, which is already pretty dark. Yeah, it's it represents probably a blue mood, I think would be the best way to do it. But it was something that Tchaikovsky wanted to do. From contemporary accounts, he was not severely depressed when he passed away. He was actually, he liked what he had composed in the Sixth Symphony, and he was looking at it as a way forward. What he was going to do after that, we won't know, because uh, he died suddenly at the age of 51. 
Um, I think the general consensus is that he died from cholera. He drank yeah. a, gla- an, a glass of unboiled water. Whether he meant to do it or not is the what is what's debated about it. But when that happens and you leave behind this deeply dark work, um, people start to speculate. The opening is especially, as when you see it live even, sometimes if you're not right up front, you can almost, you can't tell if it started yet. You know, it's probably useful to point out here that um, this opening also points back to Beethoven's Ninth, but a different part of Beethoven's Ninth, the opening, where the music just sort of seems to start from nowhere and sort of starts with nothing and then eventually coalesces. Bruckner did that in just about every one of his symphonies. They all sort of start the same way in that regard. And Tchaikovsky, I think, was probably doing quite the same thing, starting from almost nowhere and then building his material. At the end, there is this strike of a gong or a tam-tam, as we'll say, and then this low brass chorale enters, and it's it's quite long, um, over a minute long, and it gets softer and softer. And when you if you, when you're a musician, you're looking at the music, it tells you, you know, there's a P, and it's a piano, play soft, or two P's, you know, play pianissimo. With Tchaikovsky, who will write maybe four Fs to play very very loud, he'll write I forget how many at the end here is. There's at least four piece to play almost in, inaudible, I mean, how soft you can play. But there was that, I, I've heard, also heard the idea of this gong being hit is also, it's like death itself. What's also interesting too, John, about that final movement is the the traditional symphony or the symphony as set by Beethoven has to end up and victorious, right? Yeah. Tchaikovsky's fourth symphony, which we heard earlier, and his fifth symphony both end on an up note. But the sixth symphony, it starts out high and it goes down low. It ends right. softly, almost with a sense of desolation. It's almost like he took the Beethoven model and completely flipped it upside down. And that, I think, makes this a pivotal symphony in the development of the symphony. So we've had the very, very beginning up to Beethoven. Beethoven changes everything with number nine. And then we have composers like Schubert, Mendelssohn, uh, Schumann, Brahms, Bruckner, getting into 1893 with Tchaikovsky's Sixth Symphony. And it's like the whole thing changes again. But we can go to... Antonin Dvorak, who wrote um, nine symphonies, his ninth one especially is, I would say, his most popular, one of the most beloved symphonies, uh, the New World Symphony, written in 1893. It certainly uh, gets, it's one of our top vote-getters in our annual classical countdown, and for good reason. And Dvorak is an interesting composer in that he was pretty much a 
a contemporary of Brahms. Brahms was slightly older. But where Brahms was spooked by Beethoven's symphonies, it didn't seem to bother Dvorak all that much. He was looking at Beethoven's symphonies and the music of Wagner that he loved, and he got right to work when Brahms was still working on his first. Uh, Dvorak, I believe, was working on his fifth, and he'd already misplaced his first two symphonies. So yeah. it didn't bother him. And his, his symphonies are extraordinary, and it's an extraordinary uh, experience to listen to all of them. There is this brass chorale. It's actually to kind of go on further with the tuba. This is the only time the tuba plays, and you're basically playing the exact same thing as the bass trombone. You're the, you're very, you feel very useless. Um, you, there's a use. You have a very particular sound you're bringing, but and this is in the ninth. Yes, in the ninth, in this chorale specifically that opens and closes the slow movement. It's also the only thing, only time you play. There's actually a legendary story real quick. Um, There is this tuba player everyone loves. Basically, he had to play this symphony um, with his orchestra, and you don't want to sit for the rest of the whole the whole thing because you you just sit there for the whole thing and you stand at the end, but you you're just sitting there. So he brought on like an office chair without the arms on it, the rolly kind. And so he played the second movement, these, I forget how many notes there are, um, and then inch by inch, imperceptibly, just rolled a bit to the to the left. Wait a minute, roll a little bit more. By, I think by the end of the third movement, he was off stage. Now, this wasn't you by any chance. It was not me. <laughs> I've always wanted to do this. Um, thankfully, when you do play it, you, you're not at all the rehearsals. You just show up to one and you run through it and then... That's it, but that's a legend. Um, there's also some people who don't listen to a lot of classical music, and they hear the ninth, and of course they love it immediately, but sometimes I've seen in Reddit forums where people say, oh, I heard this symphony, it was amazing, I think it was something Dvorak writing that down, I don't know what it was, and people will say, did it sound like Jaws for a second? And they say, yeah, it did, it was like Jaws, and they say, oh, that's number nine, because of how you get into the finale. It's always funny. And we'll get into the symphony in the 21st century in just a minute. Let's take a break. Classical Breakdown is made possible by Classical WETA. Join us for the music anytime, day or night. To listen live, just go to our website, classicalweta.org, or download our app. It's free in the App Store. So we're getting into the 20th century with the symphony, but we we're still a little bit in the 19th, and that's just because of Gustav Mahler, I would say, is another composer who just completely changed the game for a symphony when you think of Beethoven, then Tchaikovsky, now Mahler. Yeah, there was a famous debate uh, or discussion between, um, and they were contemporaries of each other, and their careers began in the late 19th and continued into the 20th century. Gustav Mahler and the Finnish composer Jean Sibelius. Jean Sibelius said that uh, what he thought was great was a symphony was a good synthesis of everything in its right place and in the right parts. And Gustav Mahler said, no, 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 no. The symphony must be like the world. It must embrace everything. And that's exactly what Gustav Mahler attempted to do in all of his symphonies. And I also think of Mahler as 
the Wagner for the symphony. Wagner changed everything with the opera. Things are very, very long, hours and hours long. Things take a very long time to resolve musically, or an idea will take a very long time to develop. And with Mahler, when you have short, when you think of phrases in a symphony like um, Haydn and Mozart and even Beethoven, when you get to Mahler, it's just so expansive that it's, you're, sometimes it feels like you're floating in space of a I- musical idea. Yeah, Mahler, and actually like Bruckner, uh, similar to that, the Wagner idea that you just mentioned, they are very patient with their material, and they ask you as a listener to be patient as well. Your level of patience determines how long you're going to be able to sit through a Mahler or a Bruckner symphony, but it can be a very, very rewarding experience. Absolutely. Here is um, one of my favorites, the opening to Mahler's second symphony. And what I think Mahler is also doing, similar to what Tchaikovsky is doing, a lot of people up to now, they start the symphony different than it was before. There's not like a nice soft introduction unless they want that. But it's not a requirement. And starting with the low instruments, a sudden kind of bang, and then you have the bass and the the cellos taking over, which is something 50 years before would have been opposite. Right, and Mahler actually does that, has that kind of an opening with a number of his symphonies. The sixth, which has sort of a a, a trompe, like a march that it begins with, very arresting and almost terrifying. The fifth also opens much like the uh, second symphony here, the same way he's, basically he's establishing his dominion from the very beginning. And with the second symphony, uh, similar, I guess, to Beethoven, he brings in the voice as well in the fourth movement, this soprano, and that is something that's I didn't you don't see a whole lot of between Beethoven and Mahler bringing yeah, in the chorus. Yeah, it, it's quite possible that Mahler was the first composer after Beethoven who dared to bring voices in at the very end of his symphonies. The second symphony, Resurrection as it's known, is his most direct answer to Beethoven's ninth. And what you hear a lot of with the um, Dvorak we heard, and Tchaikovsky using the low brass and chorales, a very famous chorale within the second symphony of, of Mahler. And this is in 1894 when he finishes that. Now going directly into the 20th century, his symphony number no. five, written in 1901 to 1902, this opening is like none other. It starts with just one trumpet. And before we hear this, one of the most iconic openings and um, most practiced excerpt for a trumpet player is that in Mahler's music, you need a dictionary, a German dictionary when you're playing it, basically, because he writes in in full sentences directions. Before this, we have, you know, Italian, um, crescendo, you know, get louder, poco a poco, piamoso, little by little, get get faster. Mahler's writing in German full sentences that you need to translate. With the opening of this symphony, where he's already breaking the rules, we're already playing almost the wrong rhythm, because he writes in there um, to play rushed, 
you're basically rushing this da 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 dum rhythm as opposed to playing it da 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 dum da 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 dum. You're kind of rushing it a little bit. And here's what it sounds like uh, in context. That's what I love about Mahler is that it's this rushed urgency in the beginning. Also with his number, Symphony Number no. 4, which starts off with these sleigh bells, it's also written in a similar thing where some people, they slow down a lot out of time. For the next entrance or the next um, strings, I think, that come in. Right. But it's something that's wildly different than anything else you play is Mahler and his instructions. I think that's probably, that actually is maybe a key to why Mahler is performed and recorded so much these days because there's a lot of interpretive possibilities yes. to a Mahler symphony. And you know, there was even uh, one conductor, Gilbert Kaplan, who spent his entire life basically performing and conducting one symphony, and that was the Symphony Number no. 2 by Gustav Mahler. But also, he's still playing within the rules of the structure of a symphony in a lot of ways, in his own way, although completely changing the symphony in right. sound. He and, was and, and, he was still observing the rules of writing a symphony. It's just what the symphony, what you could pack into a symphony, that's where he was breaking the rules. And going to a composer that you mentioned before, Jean Sibelius, um, particularly we can look at his symphonies numbers two and four. Number two has one of the most beautiful openings of a symphony I have ever heard. Well, the, the interesting thing about Sibelius in his seven symphonies is that whereas Mahler was expanding the idea of the symphony, Sibelius began that way in his first two symphonies. And then something happened, and from his third symphonies back, the symphony became tighter, more concise, almost sort of shrinking into itself. It's actually very fascinating to, to listen to all of them. It is expansive, but in its own controlled way. And the fourth movement is so beautiful and I think was maybe influenced by some earlier composers. Almost sounds like something Tchaikovsky could have written, or even Brahms. My question for you was about to be, who do you think is getting some of these ideas from? It's It sounds like Tchaikovsky, yes. these beautiful rising lines that arrive to this you know beautiful point. Mm -hmm. Yes, exactly. Now, going to his symphony number four, which was 1910 to 1911 when he's writing this, a totally different idea. As you were saying, he was 
pairing them in? Yeah, he was he was toning things down. And there's also some consideration that at the time that he was writing this symphony, he had been diagnosed with, at that point, what the doctor had said was inoperable throat cancer. And he had to give up two of his favorite passions, drinking and smoking cigars. And they say that that it would affect his mood, of course, but they say that it also affected the music. This is the opening to his fourth symphony. That to me is one of the most arresting openings of any symphony. It's it's like a monster, like yeah. like the roar of a great beast, or um, and then it just this sort of rocking sound, you know, it's just sort of this this low bellow in the strings, like a monster or something, just sort of announcing itself, and it grips you and and pretty much knocks you back to a really good performance. The symphony is alive and well in the twentieth century, not like before. Uh, there's less composers writing the symphony, well, for one, it's very, very expensive to write a symphony. One, it takes up a lot of your time. Two, is the orchestra going to commission? Are you being commissioned for it? Are you getting paid to do it? And then is it just going to be performed that one time? So was this idea of, well, there's other things you can write for. There's a lot of chamber music, and there's a lot of other orchestral works, symphonic poems and the like, that you can do much easier than this grand statement of a symphony. Yeah, and there were still composers writing symphonies. Um, most There are a lot of composers who were writing symphonies whose music was heard back then. You don't hear them so much anymore. Uh, English composers like Malcolm Arnold or Arnold Bax. Uh, also, uh, Alan Hovhaness, who was an American composer who wrote, I think, 67 symphonies, each one of them just slightly different from the other one. Um, a Czech composer, Bohuslav Martinu, he wrote six symphonies in relatively short span of time within, I think, about 10 years, and all of them when he was living here in America. So they were being written, but as Beethoven broke the mold and composers that we talked about, like uh, Tchaikovsky and Bruckner and Mahler, opened up new possibilities to the symphony, it seemed that uh, pretty much everyone and everything was fair game. Yeah. But there are a couple of composers that stick out when it comes to the symphony in the 20th century. Those are composers... I would say, like Prokofiev and Shostakovich. Yeah, Shostakovich especially. Uh, Shostakovich burst onto the scene at the age of 18 with his first symphony, and he became world famous overnight. And he also grew up in a very, very difficult time in a very, very difficult place for an artist to create, and that was in the post-revolutionary Soviet Union. Yes, and we'll see how, we'll get to that in a second, but how that was for him. But uh, going to Prokofiev, his symphony number one is called the Classical Symphony, and it's modeled off of Haydn, I think. And what is that opening, John, but a Mannheim rocket? Yes. One time when I was working, I was playing a Haydn symphony, and it was... I still remember it. it was a symphony number 61. And as I heard it, it reminded me so much of Prokofiev's first symphony that I wondered if that was the very symphony that Prokofiev modeled his symphony on. Okay. They sound very similar. Check that out sometime. We can look at Dmitry Shostakovich now. 
He wrote 15 symphonies. And as you mentioned, he was writing in a very, very different situation, circumstances than uh, basically all the rest of these composers. And that is being under the influence, control, and authority of the Soviet Union. Uh, Shostakovich spent his entire life in the Soviet Union. He was born slightly, I believe, after the 1905 revolution. And his parents were revolutionaries in their own way as well. And it was the only system that he knew. But it's hard to imagine anybody writing music in a system, in an environment where the music that you write could cost you your life or the life of your loved ones. Yes. That's impossible for any of us to imagine that haven't actually been there. No, and and that did happen in, in this time. Um, a friend of his, Mieczysław Weinberg, um, who escaped Poland at the start of the war, his whole family died in a concentration camp. Um, then his own father-in-law, under Stalin's orders, was assassinated. Um, then Weinberg was thrown in jail. He's a composer. Shostakovich kept a suitcase packed in the hall closet outside the door just in case he heard that knock on the door in the middle of the night. He'd be ready to go. So we'll listen to the the opening of this um, Fifth Symphony of Shostakovich. It's this daunting sound, and he is making some statements in his symphonies, um, maybe not as much as Everyone attributes to every little thing he's writing in symphonies, but he is making a point. In this fifth symphony, he's really walking the knife edge. He had written a fourth symphony, which was an extraordinary work. And his opera that was about at the same time, Lady Macbeth, was very popular at the beginning until uh, there was a criticism in Pravda. And all the performances are withdrawn. And Shostakovich thought it would be a good idea to put the Symphony Number no. 4 in a drawer, and he composed the Symphony Number no. 5. This was at the height of the Stalinist purges in the late 1930s, and everybody knew what was going on. And Shostakovich sang their song in, this, in the Fifth Symphony. And I think, is this also the symphony where at the end, it's like... Um... Like a forced smile? I think that's a different symphony. Yeah, there's no, it's that's one. It's there's there's been a lot of debate about that. It sounds like a, a forced smile or um, acceptance yes. in the face of adversity. It's a fascinating ending. I can. I just can't imagine you're at you're at your own premiere, and you're having to look across the you know the concert hall to see the reaction. And people went bananas. They loved it. Yeah. They loved it. Uh, this was very successful. It became and it still is his best known symphony, and it also satisfied the Communist Party apparatchiks that have been giving him so much trouble. Yes. Now later on in his uh, life, I think he finishes in 1971. His um, 15th Symphony? Yeah, which I think is one of his most enigmatic and fascinating symphonies. It actually begins like a a toy box after midnight and all the toys coming to life. (laughs) 
It's like he's always finding something new. It's that same kind of uh, fast sound you find in the flutes and a lot of his melodies and everything, but it, it starts different with this little glockenspiel. It's right. like toys coming to life, but it's... I think it's also uh, probably... It'd be, it's interesting to point out, too, the other thing that we found in symphonies in the 20th century that we alluded to was new instruments coming in. The use of percussion, or the use of the saxophone. You hear uh, a lot of uh, percussion sounds in Shostakovich's symphonies, uh, even in the three symphonies of, uh, of uh, Stravinsky, and uh, in the symphonies of uh, Ray Fawn Williams, especially the eighth. And the end of this symphony is something... You just, I would never, ever expect. It's the most fascinating finale to any symphony in the 20th century. And he brings in the percussion um, minutes before the end. But the very, very end, it's just percussion. Yeah, a little tick-tock, like yeah. a clock, yeah. and then a little ping, and the composer vanishes. It's it's extraordinary. It sounds it sounds timeless in the sense it sounds like it was composed last week. Yes, uh, that sound, especially with percussion, he was way ahead of a lot of things that were happening. And this is 1971. It's not. It's still in the scheme of music. It was. It's very very recent. But that is just an unbelievable ending to all those huge moments you have. It as you say, just kind of extinguishes. Indeed. Well, it's been an adventure going from before Beethoven, um, after Beethoven, where you can see everyone's kind of running in a race together, then all of a sudden everyone's running in every direction possible. But I hope this gives everyone an idea of the taste, the sounds of these different composers and symphonists over this uh, last 170 years. Also the breadth and the depth of the... uh of the literature in the symphonies and uh, all there waiting for your exploration. Yes. And don't be too intimidated by a Mahler symphony that's an hour and a half. You can listen to just one movement. Right. And then, you know, people do. Yes. All right. Well, Bill, thank you so much for uh, shedding light and definitely educating me on the symphony. My pleasure. Thanks for listening to Classical Breakdown. To hear the shortest symphony ever written and other great performances of works we talked about in this episode, visit the show notes page at classicalbreakdown.org. And if you have any ideas or comments, you can send me an email at classicalbreakdown at weta.org. I'm John Banther. Thanks for listening to Classical Breakdown from Classical WETA.